Good morning, Sterling. Man, it's wonderful to see you all here this morning. It's, uh, yeah, it's great to have the 8 and 10 uh, together. And if you haven't done so already, meet, go meet someone you haven't met before and get to know them. Then you might know they come to our church or they might be new and that'll be great as well. But it's fantastic to be here with you this morning. We're going to be looking in God's Word. We're going to be carrying on our uh, series through the I Am Statements. For those of you who are visiting us, we have for the last four weeks looked at some of the I Am Statements of Jesus that are found in the Gospel of John. I'm wondering if there's a wheel missing here. No, there we go. I don't want that to wobble the whole time. Um, And so we've been looking at the I Am Statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and we've seen four of them. And today we're looking at another one. Uh, which is found in John 11, verse 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 11. Uh, We are going to be reading, however, verses 17 to to 44. So it's quite a big chunk of Scripture. Don't panic. You'll be okay. Um, But if you haven't got your Bibles, don't worry as well. It will be on uh, the screen behind me so you can follow. Um, But even that big chunk of Scripture happens in a certain context that I just want to get you updated on. And so what's happened before we read is just before this in the couple of chapters of John, we see that Jesus has been ministering in Jerusalem. And we've seen some of the things that he's said through these I am statements. And some of the teaching that he's done, some of the miracles that he has done has raised some eyebrows to say the least. But it's also caused some anger amongst the religious elite, the Pharisees of the day, who don't like what Jesus is saying to a point that at the end of chapter 10, they pick up stones to stone him because they know that Jesus is claiming to be God. And it wasn't yet time for Jesus to die. And so Jesus and his disciples head off into the countryside about 150 kilometers away from Jerusalem, and they are ministering there. And while they're out in the countryside ministering, a very close family to Jesus, a family he loved and they loved him, which consists of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are that kind of family who were supporting Jesus and they loved each other, um, Lazarus gets violently ill. And in a span of a couple of days, Lazarus starts to get sick and more and more sick. And so Mary and Martha being desperate, medicine unable to help, things just not going right, they call for their friend Jesus, knowing that he loves, loves Lazarus and maybe he will make the trek to come and heal Lazarus. And so a messenger runs off, tells Jesus, Jesus, Lazarus is dying. You must come quickly, to which Jesus responds. This is a sickness that doesn't end in death, but rather it's a sickness for God's glory, which adds in a new category of sickness that some of us don't like to think about. But here Jesus says it's going to be for God's glory. And then he carries on teaching. He teaches for another two whole days, and then he looks at his disciples And he says, I just want to let you know that Lazarus has fallen asleep and we need to go wake him up. To which the disciples go, well, hang on, Jesus, two things. One, if he's sleeping and he's sick, sleep is good, he's resting, so leave him, he will get better. And two, can't you remember they tried to kill us? So you want to go back to Jerusalem, back to Bethany, which is just outside Jerusalem, to go to Lazarus, but we could die. And Jesus, realizing they don't get it, says to them, no, he's dead and you're going to see the glory of God, so let's go. And so the disciples follow Jesus, marching behind him, thinking they are marching to their impending death. And that's where we pick up in the story. So uh, John 11, verse 17 to 44, let's go. It says this, and now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary uh, remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Mary, not un- Martha, not understanding that, says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, uh, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But others, uh, some of them said, could he, not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved, again came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. And, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said, uh, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is life in it and there is truth in it. And so we pray as we uh, hear it unpacked and preached that it would be your words that go forth and achieve its purpose. Not my own, but yours. But I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the wonder of this Jesus, that we would understand what he is saying in the statement, but not just understand it, believe it, and be changed by it for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Jesus says the most remarkable statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's a statement of power. It's a statement of hope and has a lot that we can glean from it and and benefit from it. But if we don't understand who the person is behind the statement that he is making here. We don't understand Jesus. We don't understand certain things about him that are revealed in the passage that we have read. What will happen is this marvelous statement will mean very little and we won't benefit from from it at all. And there are two things in the statement that I want to show you that 
reveals the heart of Christ. And the first is this, that Jesus is a compassionate God. Jesus is compassionate. When he sees Mary and Martha um, before him and he sees the other Jews weeping, he breaks down. His heart is broken. He, he weeps. We see it in the, the shortest verse in the English translation. It says, Jesus wept. Remarkable. That is, he sees people he loves, heart sore and broken by loss, disappointed, they're confused. Jesus himself has compassion and he weeps with them in their brokenness. Now, this shouldn't really surprise us at all because this is the heart of Christ. And he reveals that this is his heart to us, not only through his actions, but also, also through his words. We see in a famous passage in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 30, Jesus reveals what's happening in his heart. It's the only place in the four Gospels where Jesus talks about his own heart. The other times he talks about hearts, he's always talking about ours. But in the four Gospels, he says something about his own. And these famous words go like this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And here it is. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus says two things about his heart. He says, one, I am gentle, and two, I am lowly. But what does it mean by being gentle? Gentle here is a meekness, it's humility. It means that Jesus is not trigger happy. And so when we see this word used, uh, uh, this, this word gentle used in other parts of scripture, it means that Jesus isn't harsh, he isn't reactionary, he isn't easily exasperated like I sometimes find myself during rainy weather with my children. Jesus isn't like that. He's the most understanding person in the whole world. And so what that means is that Jesus' natural posture toward you and me is not one of a pointing finger saying, you should have done better. Why don't you believe enough? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? But rather, Jesus' natural posture toward us is with open arms. Arms open saying, come, all who are uh, who all who labor and are heavy laden come. It's this, this idea of gentleness, openness toward us, open arms. The word lowly here, there is an overlap with that of gentleness. It also means humble, but it's not necessarily humility in that of a virtue, but rather in that of destitution, being pushed down by life's circumstances. So we see Paul use the word, in uh, Romans 12, verse 6, he's talking to us, says that we should not be haunty, but uh, associate with the lowly. And so what Paul is saying, don't be stuck up, don't be prideful, mingle with everyone, even the marginalized, those who are outcasts in society, even the lowly. And so what does it mean then when Jesus says that he is lowly, Jesus is saying he is the most accessible person in the whole world. He's accessible, you can get to him. And so this glorious God who's mighty in power, mighty in glory, mighty in his holiness, and he's, and he, he's marvelous, he's, this majest, he's majestic in, in his ways, this God who is uh, so different from us, so far removed from the kind of things we are, yet we can get to him. I am lowly. And so that means there's no prerequisites of things that we have to do in order to get to them. There's no hoops that we have to jump through 
or we can just come as we are. So who qualifies to have fellowship with Jesus? Well, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And so that means that you don't have to unburden yourself before you can come to him. You don't have to pull yourself together and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get yourself right before you can come to him. He says, no, no, if you are laboring, if you are striving to try iron out the creases in your life, and every time you seem to get one crease gone, a new mountain arises, come to me, those of you who labor and are striving, and I will give you rest. Some of you might not even be active at all because of the heavy laden of life. You are burdened with the hardships of life that you can't even move. Christ says, open up your arms and I will remove the hard things from you and I will give you the rest your soul so desperately needs. This is the character of Jesus, that he is a compassionate God toward you. His posture is one of open arms saying, will you come and enjoy the rest that I will give you? You don't have to earn it. You just have to open up your arms and I will move towards you. You see, if you don't believe this about Jesus, if you don't grasp this idea that Jesus is compassionate towards you with open arms, when I tell you about he is the resurrection and the life, you'll go, that's not for me. That might be for others, but I don't qualify for that. My life isn't well put together enough for that, but what this idea of Matthew 11 and John 11 verse 35 tells us is that when we see him weep is that he loves you and is compassionate for you in the state you find yourself in and he wants to do a work in you. He's still compassionate and he cares deeply for your situation. Michael Eaton says this. He says this on the, the, on the scripture of Jesus wept. He says he's still immense, uh, he still has immense sympathy for us. If we could see him with an eye of faith, we would see that he is often is weeping for us. So sympathetic is he. So the first emotion we see is we see a compassion of Jesus. The first part of his character, he's compassionate towards you. But there is another one, and it seems polar opposite to that of compassion. In our text this morning, there is a demonstration of the anger of Jesus. We don't see it easily in the English, English tests, te- texts. For some reason, we seem to make it softer, but it's there in the Greek. Let's read verse 33. It says this, When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. That's the word there. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This word deeply moved is anger. It's indignation. He is cross. He is outraged. He is frustrated. There is a move in his spirit deeply at something that makes him angry. The word in the Greek is often used for the word to describe a horse snorting. Now, I'm not going to make that sound for you this morning, but you get it. It's just, there's something in him. He is mad. He is, he's cross. He is moved. But at what? Some suggest it might be the lack of faith that is being shown around him, which could be partly true. But I think it's more than that. I think Jesus is angry at the result of sin, sickness, and death that has happened because of, uh, that has happened to the people he loves. As he looks out and sees people he deeply loves, and he sees 
them mourning and hurt, he turns to the one that has caused that. He turns his attention to sin, sickness, and death, and the one behind those things. And he is moved within his spirit because he is angry. These two emotions of Jesus, that he is uh, compassionate, but also that he gets angry at sin and the consequences of sin are emotions that are reconcilable. They're not irreconcilable. We can reconcile them together. We can see that in a father who deeply loves his children. He loves them. Try and mess with his children. What's going to happen? He's going to get angry. Why? Because of his deep love for his kids. What drives Jesus' anger is his love for these people. So in Matthew 18, verse 6, it's not going to be on the screen, but we remember that Jesus says uh, about, he, he goes and pronounces an incredible amount of condemnation upon those who would cause children to sin. He says, if you would do so, it would be better for you to have a millstone around your neck and thrown into the ocean and drowned. Why? Because Not because Jesus is glad and enjoys torturing the wicked, but rather because he has a deep love for children that leads to such a, a, a powerful wrath that would come upon you because of that. It's his love that drives that. And now that is important for us to understand this morning, that we can have a fuller picture of Jesus, that one, Jesus is gentle and lowly, but also he is a fierce God. You see, the danger is if we only picture Jesus as a gentle and lowly and, com- and a comforter, but not realize his anger and power is to start to look at Jesus as a wet blanket, a doormat that you can walk over, somebody who can use. Instead of gentle and lowly, we use fluffy and foamy. But Jesus is not that. He's a king. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's a judge. And so we have to have a whole picture of Christ. He's gentle, but he's also mighty in power. And when you add these two things together, what happens? You have a God who moves powerfully towards the one he loves. He moves in power to change a circumstance. He has people whom he loves, and he's heartbroken by what they're going through. But also what he has is an anger towards the one behind sin and its consequences of this fallen world. And so what Jesus does is he he moves in power and he changes the situation. He speaks and Lazarus comes to life. A powerful God that moves. And, And Jesus in this text makes sure that we understand that he alone has the power to raise the dead. You see, there was a Jewish superstition. We see in first century writings, there was a Jewish superstition that believed when a body had died, what would happen is the spirit would hover around the body for three days, trying to get into the body. And after three days, it would go away, and then that person had no chance of coming back to life. And when does Jesus pitch up after Lazarus' death? The fourth day. He comes in to make sure that when he does this, that there's no way this can be spun, that this wasn't Jesus doing the work. Jesus comes and emphatically shows that he has the key to death and life. And when he does so, he doesn't do it with a song and a dance. He simply just speaks. Lazarus, come out. One of the commentators I read this week says the reason why he has to call out Lazarus, come out, and didn't say come out because the power of Christ is such that if he just said come out, all the dead would rise. I don't know if that's what John is getting to, but it was cool. So I thought I'd share it with you. That is the power of of a compassionate but fierce Jesus is that he can overcome anything and overturn it. And he moves toward us for his glory and for our good. And so when we look at Lazarus rising, what it is, it's the parable 
of what Jesus wants to do in us when he says, I am the resurrection and life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he lives. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This rising of Lazarus is a, is a, is a picture of what Jesus wants to do in us if we would believe in him. So how does that happen? Well, there are two things in that text. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then the first thing he says is, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And this is talking about the resurrection. And there's two elements to this resurrection. And the first is that of a spiritual resurrection. That he wants to, this is referring to the internal work and change which happens within the heart of a person who believes in God. You see, what you've got to realize is that if you do not know Christ this morning, Scripture paints the picture that you are spiritually dead. You are spiritually dead. We see this in a famous passage in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. It says the following. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You're dead. Not alive, ambling along, but you are dead. And, and here's the thing about dead people. They've got no hope. You can't do anything. This is, you are dead in your sins. And, and the, the problem with that is that you can't make yourself alive. You can't get rid of your sins. You can't make sure that you are right with God. In actual fact, at the end, I'm not going to read the, uh, verse, all verses 1 to 3, but at the end of verse 3, it says, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Is that we were speaking about this fierce anger of Jesus. Well, now what this text is saying is that that target is set on us. The wrath of God is to be poured out on those who are dead in the sin because he hates sin so much. But again, dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't change their state. And so here we find ourselves in a bit of a problem. But thank God for verse 4 to 5. It says this in Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 5. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. And here it is made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so what we see is though we are dead in our sins, deserving the full wrath of God, God in his love propels and comes towards us by sending Jesus. That's what we celebrate in Christmas. That a Savior would come, he would take on human flesh, he would live the life that you and I could not live, and he would eventually be nailed to a cross. And on that cross, your sin, which is the wrath of God, is being pointed at. Your sin would be placed upon Jesus. And the target that is set on you shifts from you to Jesus. And the wrath of God is poured out fully upon him. And the punishment we deserve to die, the death we deserve to die, Jesus dies. And he would die and he would be buried in a tomb like Lazarus. But three days later, Jesus would rise again from the grave. And in doing so, we who believe in Christ through the resurrection of Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, we are told that we are made spiritually alive again. This is the work of Jesus. This is why Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life. Because he alone has bore our sins. He alone has taken our punishment. He alone has risen himself from the grave, proving that sin has been paid for and death has been defeated. And for those who would believe in Christ, we are told we are go gone from spiritually dead and there's a quickening within our hearts and suddenly life is breathed into our lungs and we are made alive. 
as through the death and resurrection. We see this in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. There's life. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are made alive because of the resurrection of Jesus. Again, in Romans 4 verse 25 says, talking about Jesus here, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. That through the resurrection of Jesus, when we are united with him, we are made spiritually alive, but also we are made just as if we had never sinned. And so we need to be united in Christ. We need to be connected to the resurrection and life in order for us to experience spiritual life. It's found only in Jesus. How do we get it? How do we get it? Well, thankfully, Ephesians uh, 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's through faith alone. Jesus emphasizes belief three times in the, the message to, to Martha. He says, I'm the resurrection life. Whoever believes in me, through faith, whoever believes in me, yet he shall die and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There's the second one. And then he goes. He doesn't just speak about it hypothetically in a, in a general sense of belief. He looks at Martha and says, do you believe? Do you believe? And this morning, it's important for us not to just speak about this in a general sense, but you have to ask yourself the question. That's why John records it like this, so that we could ask ourselves the question, do we believe? Do you believe? And if you say yes to that, the moment you believed was the moment the Good Shepherd, if you remember last week's sermon, called out your name and life was given to you. Like Lazarus, he called out your name and you were raised to life. It is through faith and faith alone that we get this. Now, when we believe in Jesus like this, we are told we are made spiritually alive, but it's also talking about a physical resurrection. Not only are we talking about a resurrection within our souls, but also a physical one. There's this eternal hope that we will find. That one day we too will not only rise spiritually, but we will get new glorious bodies. And, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. And says this, and God raised the Lord, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And so we will raise up physically. Similarly in 2 Corinthians uh, 4 verse 14 says, knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. And so there's this future hope of one day rising again and being brought into the presence of God. But what will our spiritual, physical bodies look like? Paul gives us a bit of an indication in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says this, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of all of those who have been fallen asleep. So Peter, uh, Paul calls Jesus first fruits, which is a, a meta, an agricultural metaphor that he's trying to use here. What would happen with first fruits is at the beginning of harvest, you would glean some and then you would taste it and that would be able to tell you the quality and what you can expect from the rest of the harvest. And so when Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection, it is he, that is a taste, a foreshadowing of what we are going to have. So we, praise God, are not going to be stuck with these old feeble bodies that break in or get hurt, but we're going to get a body like Christ that's going to match our new spiritual uh, eternal life, and we're going to have a body that's going to last forever too, not age. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. Amen. All said all the people who got aches and pains this morning. 
the hope that we have is not here, but a future glorious one. That we will have physical bodies brought into the presence of God and we'll live on the new heavens and the new earth. That's another whole sermon in itself. So there is one element where there's a resurrection that takes place within our hearts, within our souls, and also a physical future one. But Jesus goes on to explain a little further in, in, in that text. He says, and everyone who believes in me shall never die. So if the first statement is a spiritual and physical resurrection, the second part of the statement is that we would live in the power of the resurrection that we would be able to now, while on this earth, enjoy the benefits of being connected to Christ and experience the power of the resurrection in our lives. We see this with Paul. He says his lifelong goal in, in, in Philippians 3 verse 10 says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. He knew that there, even in this life, he could have the power of the resurrection that would spur him on to live the Christian life that he needs to live. In Ephesians 1 verses 19 and 20, it says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us, lives within us now. The power of the Holy Spirit is within us so that we can live. And it changes the way we are. It changes the way we live. How does it do that? Well, the first thing that I want to look at is that it changes our past. It untangles our past. And, and, and one of the ways he does that is he untangles the pains that we have uh, felt from the past and gives us resurrection power to live in. I want you to consider Mary and Martha's first words this morning. They're exactly the same. I don't know if you noticed it. Both of them come to Jesus at different parts of the story, but yet they both say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I guess you could argue that maybe John's been a bit lazy and just kind of summarized what they're saying in the same words, but I suspect over the four days of Lazarus being dead, that these are the words that they've said to one another over and over again. If he had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. If he had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. If he had been here, if he had been here, if he had been here. So by the time they see Jesus, they just have to spout it out. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Now, now, we mustn't look down on Mary and Martha, and I think we tend to do that and say, oh, why do you lack so much faith? We know the end of the story. This is a famous story. I doubt many of you have heard it for the first time this morning. You've heard it before, and we know Lazarus is going to rise again, and so we just forget of the pain and suffering that they have gone through. This is an illness that has come across Lazarus quickly and has, has killed him at a rapid pace. There would have been high fevers. There would have been things that come with sickness, smells and, and sights, a, a loss of dignity. There would have been incredible amounts of anxiety and worry as they saw their brother get worse and worse and worse. They would have had sleepless nights taking turns to check on him, all the while looking out the window going, is he here yet? We've called for him. He knows, is he here yet? Is he here yet? Where is he? And Jesus no-shows, and their brother dies. Can you imagine the hurt and pain that they have gone through? And I say that this morning because like Mary and Martha come along and, and say to Jesus, where were you? I feel that many of us have had experiences in our lives, things that have been done to us, pains and hurts that we have gone through, where we can't hold back and go, God, where were you? Where were you? If you had just been here, maybe something else would have been different. 
And when Martha says that to Jesus, Jesus says, no, but your brother will rise again. And she misses it. He says, yes, yes, but the future resurrection which you have spoken about. He says, no, no, what does he do? He points her to himself and says, Martha, I am the resurrection life. He says, Martha, there is life within me. There's life within me. And, and so I, I want to tell you this morning that this story of Lazarus rising from the dead is a, is a promise from God that if we would come to him, that he could take what is dead in our lives and bring it and make it life. He can take what is dark in our lives and bring it to life. He can take what is hurt and bring it to joy. Now, I'm not promising that God is going to untangle time and change that, but the power of Jesus that is even in the hurts and in the pains, if you would trust him and come in your vulnerableness and in your brokenness, that he is able to take hard things and bring life to it. I have had the privilege, I had not planned this Auntie Elsie, so I'm sorry. I've had the privilege over the last four weeks of doing a Bible study with Auntie Elsie. It's had many hard life, a hard life, like some people have never experienced. But yet, I can see life. Because in Christ, he has redeemed and restored. doesn't mean the hurts and things that weren't there, but even in that, Christ is some way in his godness able to take what is broken and bring life to it. The question for you this morning is the same question that he asked Martha. Do you believe? And if you can say yes to that, he says, come, my arms are open. Let me bring life. Let me bring life to it. For some, this morning is not so much past pains, but it's past sin. You, you feel that you've done such horrendous things. You hear about how he wants to resurrect you spiritually from the dead, and you, you assume, well, no, that can't be me. I, I've done things that are awful. I've, I've done things that are dark, and God would probably do that in other people, but for me, I'm so far gone and so much in the darkness that he won't do that for me. But friends, Scripture shows us, church history shows us that God is able to take those in the outskirts of darkness and make them his bright as light. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus resurrects three different people. We see, firstly, in John, uh, Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 40 to uh, 56, we see him raise a 12-year-old girl who had just died. In Luke 7, the chapter before, we see him raise a young man who had been dead probably just over a day. And in, in our story today, we see that he raises Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. And if I had asked you this morning, who is the most dead, you would laugh at me. Because all are just as dead. There's no degrees of death. You're dead or you're not dead. There's degrees of decay, but not death. And friends, there are millions of people who act religious, who walk around, who don't necessarily have much of a smell to them. They're like a 12-year-old girl, but they're just as dead. There are those who have maybe a little bit of a stench to them in their actions and their way they do, but they're just as dead. And then there are those who, who, like Martha says, don't roll that tomb away. The stench is so bad, but they're just as dead. And Jesus is able to resurrect any dead person. The promise is that you can come with all your ugliness, all your stench, all your filth, and if you would come to him, he would make you alive. The question to you this morning is, do you believe that? And if you say, yes, I do. Well, Romans 10 verses 9 says, if you believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For it's with the heart that one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you believe there's salvation for you because Christ is powerful enough to resurrect your heart? Now, 
On the other end, I want to say that some of you are alive, but you are like Lazarus a little bit. You're alive in the sense that Jesus has called your name and he says, come out and he's used your name and there is life in you. There's a quickening that has happened. There's an eternal change that's happened within your heart. But like Lazarus, you are still bound to your grave clothes. You still have your arms bound and he had to hop out of the grave. And I, I feel that many of us have been given life by Jesus, but yet we are still enjoying the stench of our past. You're still enjoying the old things that Christ has set you free from, and you're not giving those things up. You are enjoying the meekness and gentleness of Jesus, but you are forgetting his anger towards sin. And you're living your life, you're living the way you want to, and I feel like Christ is saying this morning, cast those things off. You might have life in me. Jesus says in John 10, 10, we looked at this last week, I've come to give life and life abundantly. You are experienced the life part, but you are missing out on the abundancy of his, what he has to offer because you're not living for him, you're living for yourself. You're enjoying the grave clothes. You are hopping around with your hands bound and your feet bound and your eyes covered. He's saying there's so much more for you to see. There's so much more for you to experience. There's freedom that I have given you. Come and enjoy it in me get off cast those things off cast it off so galatians 5 verse 1 says for freedom christ has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit to the yoke of slavery stand firm therefore do not submit again to the yoke of slavery or my, may i put it do not put it bound yourself with those grave clothes again live in the freedom that he has for you you see living in the power of the resurrection includes gaining more and more victory over the hold that sin might still have on us. And I've got one or two more things to say here, and they'll be quick, don't panic. It says this, also, not only do we have, does Jesus want to untangle the past and help us to live in the power now, but he pulls in the future hope that we have to change the way we are now too. He untangles the past so that we might have power in the resurrection now, but he also pulls in the future hope and that changes the way we live too. You see, when I, I feel that what happens is one of the things that happens when we look to the future is God changes our priorities. When we live in light of eternity, it changes our priorities. I'm worried that there is this Christianese, it's like the meme kind of Christian, it's the bumper sticker type Christian. We, we have uh, all the right things to say. We know how to say them, when to say them, uh, but actually the spiritual depth behind those statements is very few and far between. I, I think we see it in Martha, and I don't want to be hard on her this morning, but I see it in John 11 verses uh, 22, uh, 21 to 22. It says, And it says, The Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So there's the heart. That's the truth. And then she goes to the Christianese bumper sticker and says, But even now I know whatever you ask for, my Father will give you. And then Jesus says, Oh, he's going to rise again. She goes, yeah, no, yeah, I know you won't, teacher. She doesn't get it. She says the right thing, but she doesn't necessarily follow through. And he says, move the stone, Martha. No, but it stinks, Lord. She still doesn't get it. And I, I'm worried that for many of us, we know the right things to say. We got the bumper sticker Christianity. We've got the little terminology we throw around when somebody asks us how we're doing, when things are bad, and we know, don't worry, God's got this. And we say all the right things that are true, but don't have any depth because there is a lack of faith. There's no commitment to Jesus. There's no desire to love him. There's no desire and commitment to his church. There's no desire and commitment to his mission and his kingdom. 
We've got the spiritual depth here that is low, and we live for everything other than for Jesus. And friends, while the future resurrection changes that is because how foolish will it be that when we come to the end of our lives, we have realized that we didn't get to know this Jesus at all. That we have lived for the now and not the future. We see this in 1 John 22 verses 28. It gives us some striking words. It struck me a couple of months ago. It says in 1 John 2 verses 28, it says, And now little children, so he's talking to Christians, abide in him. That's what we must do. That's what our lives are about. Abiding in Jesus. Abide in Him. Know Him. Enjoy Him. Live for Him. Uh, cling to Him. Let Him be your strength. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Or when we would die and resurrected and stand before this glorious God, how foolish we will seem that we have lived for ourselves, not Him. How foolish it will be when we see the magnitude of Jesus before us, that we did not take time to know him, that actually who is standing before us is a stranger. We know him as Savior, we know him as Lord to a degree, but we don't know him as friend because we haven't taken part of those things. The future resurrection that we will get life and gain in us also helps us to revalue what is important, that we will live in eternity forever and all the things that we live for now we will not bring with us. How foolish it will be that you've spent your life gaining much here but nothing there. It changes the way we live. And so instead, what we are to do, what the future uh, future resurrection does is that it gives us and helps us to stay close to Jesus. We as Christians long for the day when there will be no more suffering. I know I do. I'm sick of ESCOM. Sick of it. I'm sick of all the uh, politicians and their rubbish. I'm sick of the suffering and the poverty. I'm sick of the death and the sickness and hearing this person's sick and this person's died. I'm done with it. And so when I hear of the, the future that I have with Christ, I long for it. There is this striving. I can't wait, Lord, to so you would come back. Could you come today? Amen. ESCOM would be sorted. But I will be with you. But the promise of Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, is that there is a taste of that now. There's a taste of his power now. There's a taste of the closest now. You don't have to wait until then. Oh, it's going to be in its fullness and its grandeur. But if you would just abide in Him, if you would just stick to Him, if you would just come to Him, you can enjoy a lot of what He has in store for you now. Even in the darkness, even in the suffering, even in the pain, there is life to be had in Jesus. Why go anywhere else? Jesus has come. This morning, I hope I haven't scared you into thinking his finger toward you is like this today. But he's not. It's, it's like this. His natural posture is, will you come? Will you enjoy me? I have life to give you. A fullness and abundancy of it. Cast it with great, with great praise. Run in the freedom I have. Abide in me. Let us pray. As your eyes are closed, what is one thing that God has said to you this morning?
What is one thing that he has said to you today? And is there an action that you can take in light of that? Do you believe? Do you believe? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. Our Lord, without us, without you, we, we are lost. We lack the power to live a godly life. We lack the ability to be able to have joy without you that lasts. We, we lack the ability to make ourselves spiritually alive, but I am grateful for this text that you have stood up and said there's, there's resurrection life in you. And I pray, Lord, for those in this room this morning that you would have, by the power of your Spirit, solidify what they've heard today and that you would stir within us a belief, a faith in you that helps us to live for the power of Jesus, that we might be able to proclaim with conviction and truth that you are the resurrection and the life, that yes, Lord, we believe, and that will result in a life that is changed. I pray for those who have hard past hurts, that, Lord, as they open up their eyes to you by the power of your resurrection, that you would stir life that the enemy has tried to take away. That, Lord, with those who are dealing with big sins, that they would feel the closeness of God who is drawing them in. That those who are, have life but yet haven't been able to live in the freedom of it and enjoy the past, that you would convict them that there is a real life found in you. Help us to live in light of eternity, we pray, and make us a bright, glorious light for your name, we ask. And the people of God 